My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. Our guest for this special political edition of the More Than My Past podcast is former Conservative politician Rory Stewart. Rory served as Minister of State for Prisons under David Cameron's government from January 2018 to May 2019. You can now hear him chatting to former More Than My Past guest Alistair Campbell on their chart-topping podcast, The Rest Is Politics. Rory is one of the few ministers who has been brave enough to question the wisdom of using prison as a dumping ground for tens of thousands of people who have not committed serious offences, most of whom are struggling with mental health or addiction problems. Together with David Gork, he brought forward proposals to get prison policy out of the damaging cycle of overcrowding, overspending and high offending rates. Given that I can't be trusted to talk about politics, I sat this one out and left Julie alongside Forward Chief Executive Mike Trace to interview Rory. A rare government figure of recent years who seemed to have a genuine will to help and understand those in prison, Mike and I were keen to ask Rory about his time in the role as well as his wider views on the subject. We thought we'd put this episode out ahead of the new series to give a policy perspective on many of the issues we'll be talking about in series two. We also asked our guests to tell us what they would do to change the system for the better if they had the opportunity. So you'll be hearing from them on that one in a later episode. Now, over to Julie, Mike and Rory. The charity, we have a lot of experience, uh, Rory, of, of, of coming across people who have very clear roots to where their life has gone wrong. Uh, this could be sort of childhood trauma and neglect and abuse. The vast majority of people we come across have had difficult childhoods or there's mental health problems in adulthood. And of course, statistically, all of these things are reasons for uh, people struggling or or uh, behaving in ways that put them outside of society. But we're also very big on personal responsibility. We don't want to say society, you know, make the excuse for people that society did it. Everybody has their own personal responsibility for their actions. Um, what what's your feeling or experience or opinions about uh, the balance between external factors, social factors, and individual culpability in driving deviant or criminal behaviour? I think it's it's a, probably the most important moral question that any of us face, and I don't think anybody has got a straightforward answer to it. Obviously, as you say, the in prisons, many, many of the people that I encountered, perhaps even the majority, had very, very testing or challenging lives, I think. The years when I was prison minister, something like 40% of the prisoners have been excluded from school at some time or another. High 30% have been in care. Levels of mental health issues or addiction issues were, were well up at the sort of 50-60% rate. So clearly, prisoners come often from the most vulnerable, most marginalized parts of society. Not, not entirely, but many, many prisoners do. And obviously, when the numbers are like that, you can draw a pretty clear link. It's clearly a huge contributory factor to what people do. Um, I don't really, I think, as a prison minister, get too much into the question of how much one assigns blame or moral responsibility. I think these are deep questions about free will and our culture and our genes and all these kinds of issues. I don't really think I'm qualified to talk about it. I think what is important, though, is to find a way of balancing 
the compassion that one feels for prisoners with a sense of compassion, strong sense of compassion, strong sense of respect towards their victims and our responsibility to preserve the law. So I suppose it's a way of saying I don't really feel my business is to look into people's souls or to blame them. I think my business as a prison minister was to show as much love and compassion for prisoners as possible, but also acknowledge that many prisoners should be in prison and they inflict, many of them, whether it's the fault of their childhood or not, untold misery on people outside prison. What you've just described, Rory, there is, is the same view that we would take as, as, as an organisation, is that we, we try not to be ju- judgmental. It's very important to acknowledge where people have come from because that's, often, that's, that's really what's driving the behaviour. But it's very important not to give people a kind of an excuse or a get-out clause to say, well, it was because of my childhood or it was because of something else society is in society. And that comes up actually quite often in, in court cases. You know, you will have defence lawyers uh, giving defences for an individual saying that they were under the influence of drugs or they were, uh, um, it was a mitigating factor, their background and history. And we find ourselves quite, quite conflicted with that because on the one hand, that's undoubtedly true, but it's also very important not to undermine personal responsibility and a lot of the clients we come across do, you know, in, in, in the situation we meet them, will kind of step away from that personal responsibility. And we, we don't want to buy into that. But it's, it's finding that balance that we struggle with. Just to say, no, completely from, from, a, from my own experience of offending and, you know, causing havoc and, uh, and, and whatnot in, in my, my addiction, a lot of my issues stem from childhood experiences, sadly. And, and, and that is the same and can be said for a lot of the, lot of the people that we, that we support on a daily basis. And while I was very keen to take, you know, responsibility and to, um, acknowledge the victims that I had hurt in, in my, um, history, there is an element of I was also a victim and, when I stepped into prison several times before getting support, there was no support for me as a victim stepping into prison. It was it was a punishment. And, and again, while I duly needed that punishment and took it, um, I think there is a far cry for people that, you know, are victims as well. Um, and there needs to be more input into people in prison that have been victims in their past. Yeah, so, Michael, Julie, my, my, I wonder whether the word victim is actually helpful. I mean, in a sense, everybody's a victim, and it's maybe a little bit of a charged word which can create a lot of different reactions from a lot of different people. I think it, I find it more useful to bring it down to talking about people's concrete experiences, to talk about... Um, what actually happened to them in their childhood, to talk about addiction issues, to talk about mental health issues, to talk about people who've been in care or talk about people who've been struggling with literacy. And I, even the word victim I don't like because it, it carries with it a whole series of complicated forms of moral baggage. Yeah, I think that's true. And the, the, you know, what is structurally in our court system, particularly in our, our punishment system, is victim and offender. And the other side of that is... Uh, the offender, and as you say, Rory, we we try very hard to 
get our clients to confront what's happened in their life and confront their part in that. But that's very hard to do in sort of institutional settings like courts or custody suites or or um, you know formal settings. Uh, but it's very clear that to understand somebody's culpability, the their guilt or the sentence that must be applied, it's very important to understand those backgrounds. But as I say, sometimes court is not the best place to be examining that. Pretty deep stuff for some individuals. You know what we often find ourselves in the situation with is that. Uh, we are trying to pick that apart. Somebody's confronting their history when all of the criminal justice process has been completed. So we'll meet people in the prison uh, reception areas and start a process of rehabilitation when all of this stuff will come out, uh, when it hasn't really come out in the uh, in the court process. So one, one of the things I'm obsessed with in prisons, and I felt very, very strongly when I was a prisons minister, is that in the adult male estate particularly, the conditions in prisons, many, many prisons, are just horrifying. I mean, they're very shameful. Their prisons are filthy. They're drug-ridden. They're very violent places. And one of the ways in which we let down prisoners is by putting them in fundamentally unsafe and uh, substandard, crowded, disgusting conditions. And we would be able to do much, much better in terms of working with prisoners if we actually provided people decent places to, to live. And what do you think the premium would be if if we managed to do that? And I mean, obviously, we'd agree with you that prisons uh, conditions are particularly low ebb and have been recently. And it makes it very hard to focus on self-improvement or any sort of rehabilitation. If the prison system, prison service, were able to to create those more rehabilitative environments, how big do you think the the premium would be in terms of uh, reducing reoffending and turning? It's, it's, it's difficult to know what the premium would be. I mean, I think we we have to start from the point of view that decency in a prison is just a fundamental obligation to a fellow human. That we should be ashamed as a country to have that kind of situation going on. But I think we can be confident that if prisons were better run, if they were cleaner, if they were better organized, it would be much easier to run, for example, education programs, therapy programs, because prisons are often going into lockdown because of completely unnecessary violent events, because the schedule of the day isn't being organized properly. Prisoners can get extremely irate, understandably, about quite simple things such as failure to deliver blankets, toilet paper, lost possessions. And it would just create, I think, the structures and the sense of predictability around prisoners, which is very important for people whose lives are pretty chaotic and uncertain to begin with. At least in prison, we should be able to have a relatively clear set of rules and expectations and provide a more orderly, calmer environment for people to learn. Now, whether that translates immediately into reducing reoffending, that's more difficult to prove. But I certainly think you've got a better hope in doing any form of reform or rehabilitation if you've got a more orderly, disciplined, safer environment. Yeah, that's certainly true in our experience. Uh, and Julie, when, you know, when we've been running... Uh, uh, drug addiction programs in prisons, drug and alcohol recovery programs, uh, we we find it very hard to deliver 
the sort of recovery culture we want to deliver when all of those daily pressures are on people that you've described. You know, some of those daily pressures are the drug market. Uh, as you know, many people can get hold of drugs in prisons, but also the daily pressures of not having the right equipment, not being able to get to the right part of the prison to attend the course. Um, and it makes it very hard to run the rehabilitation. And uh, we know of many people who would put their hands up and say uh, they want to uh, uh, to try to use their time in prison to change, who just never get the opportunity because, you know, life in there is too chaotic. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a difficulty, isn't it, also, because it puts a lot of pressure on prison officers and governors. And many of them are incredible individuals who are working very hard and are very dedicated to what they're doing. But it's a job that requires an incredible amount of energy. Somebody described it to me as sort of pulling on an elastic band, where as soon as you relax for a second, the whole thing springs back again. You know, I, I was just full of respect for governors. There's a governor I worked with called Rick Stewart in Hull, who was able to, in a difficult local prison, deliver a much more decent, cleaner, safer environment. He had these big signs up saying a prison safe for prisoners, safe for prison officers, safe for families, which I thought was a, a lovely way of thinking about it. And he, he somehow managed to do it. But it is a it's a surprisingly difficult thing to do. It is. It's it's been difficult. I think leading up to the pandemic there was definitely pressures in being able to find, like Mike said, the right environment to be able to deliver uh, rehabilitation within the prison and then of course the pandemic is hit and everything that we were doing really well at across the prison services was stripped back because of you know lockdowns and and um, and of course the pandemic and now that we have we're slowly emerging from that it appears that we are facing even more crisis in that shortage of officers, shortage of space, there's now a new thing that's been installed, which is called up and down time across prisons, which means if you're not at the right location, you're not able to access rehabilitation or access certain groups. Um, and the worry is, of course, family visits are still pressurized. We've done quite a few visits recently where fathers are having to conduct visits with their children across Skype and often or not the you know the signal goes down it cuts off while easy to explain to the the prisoner that he's not able to conduct you know continue because of the the wi-fi it's even more difficult to explain that to a six-year-old child on the other end of the camera um and that thing that thing julie is a, a weird thing too because we put a huge amount of energy into in some prisons trying to get telephone links, video links into Victorian prisons, which was very difficult to do because it's very difficult to get through those stone walls and sort out the Wi-Fi connection issues. But almost any time I talked to a prisoner, they would say that almost every prisoner had access to a mobile telephone anyway. So I was always confused about what was going on, why we were pumping what was supposed to be nearly £100 million into getting telephony into prisons where most people seem to have a phone anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's a very real challenge to the uh, prison authorities now. Uh, the questions become even louder uh, since your time as minister. Is There is good commitment, I think, in Ministry of Justice to get prisoners more connectivity for courses, programs, family contact. Um, but it's going to be a massive and long-term undertaking to make that real. 
the pressure to say, well, let's use mobile phone technology uh, is, is still a very real question. But I think security concerns are are uh, winning the day still. But I, I'm not sure it makes much sense. But it, this is obviously something that will irritate my former colleagues. But given that almost everybody has a phone, um, saying that this is a security concern is, is not being honest about what's actually going on. If everybody's got a phone, the security problem's there anyway. And it seems to be almost impossible to prevent people getting phones. Um, and therefore, I think we're just um, we're spending a lot of money pretending to do something, but we're not really making any concrete difference to security if everybody can get to a phone anyway. And particularly the most dangerous prisoners have no difficulty at all accessing the phone. Uh, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I think a creative and much cheaper solution would uh, could take us a long way forward. We spend a lot of time trying to get iPads supervised by our own staff, but getting iPads to prisoners so they can engage in various online uh, courses and support structures. And it's it's like drawing teeth. You you can get something in under very controlled conditions, can't connect to the internet, obviously. Um, and there's so much good work could happen um, if the technology was allowed. And obviously, uh, looking back on some of the things you said when you were prisons minister, I mean, your time with David Gork, uh, organizations like ours were very hopeful in that time that we were going to see some significant changes in in the availability of rehabilitation and the, uh, the prison policy. A lot of the pressure on governors and on the system is pure weight of numbers. And, uh, you know, the amount of money that has to be spent on the prison system is all taxpayers' money on not uh, particularly good outcomes. Um, it always seems to me that we could do so much better with a smaller prison population and a much greater uh, rehabilitation population, whether they were in, uh, you know, hostels or, or whatever, but actually going through um, rehabilitation programs. But the problem with that is the what I call the arms race to be tough on crime, and that, that doesn't show any signs of abating. Um, there are an awful lot of people in prison that could be dealt with better in other environments, but it doesn't look like uh, much is changing in that sense. Well, I, I agree with you. The, there's very clear academic evidence that sending someone to prison for a short prison sentence increases their chance of reoffending compared to not putting them in prison at all. So why do we do it, given that it's basically creating danger for the public and costing us an enormous amount and contributing to the problems of managing prisons and violence in prisons because they're overcrowded? You could almost halve the number of people in prison if you stop giving sentences up to two years. So why does it happen? Well, it happens, of course, because magistrates in particular, who are often involved in the very shortest prison sentences, get frustrated. They get frustrated with community sentences. They get frustrated with repeat offenders, and they begin to think, I'm reaching the end of my tether. There's nothing I can actually do about this individual. I'm going to have to send them to prison. And they try to justify it to themselves in a couple of ways. One is they say, well, maybe it will give the public a bit of a respite. But of course, that's unrealistic because usually the time these people are in prison is so short, it's not a realistic respite. And secondly, that they just feel that somehow something needs to be seen to be done. But the truth is that sending people to prison for a short sentence doesn't seem to have any deterrent effect at all. And so the magistrates are, I think, expressing their frustration, but they're not actually making the public safer. I think the, the way through this is to improve the quality of the community sentences, because although from an 
academic point of view, it's true to say that the public is safer if you don't punish the prisoner at all. And the magistrates and the public will not be happy with the idea that somebody who, for example, regularly shoplifts receives no punishment at all. And one of the things that drives magistrates and others calling for these short sentences is the sense that the community sentences are largely a joke. And that's partly, of course, because the financial investment in the community sentences is very limited. And the problem is that the more we invest, and this is a political and economic problem, the more you invest in community sentences, the more difficult it is to say to the Treasury, well, we're saving money by not sending people to prison, because if you're spending £30,000 looking after someone in the community when the cost of keeping them in a local prison is, say, £28,000 a year, um, you're not really delivering any savings. So these are the kinds of things in the background of policymakers' minds. I, I still believe very strongly that we should abolish short prison sentences. Um, but there's a lot of convincing that you have to do to pull that off. And, and you you and David Gorg represented that view. And uh, uh, how close did you get to uh, uh, turning policy around with that? Oh, very, very close. Um, very close. Uh, so um, it's it, we we got it all the way through the number ten clearance process. We got to the stage of commissioning the right green and white paper. We had announced it in Parliament. We'd done our consultations. We'd taken the hit from the Daily Mail. I had headlines saying Minister Groves green light to criminals and Theresa May's government to their credit. We warned them this would happen and they were ready for it and they took it. The problem really there was that she was toppled because of the fallout from Brexit and the Boris Johnson government wanted to go in the other direction. Another casualty of Brexit. Another casualty of Brexit, exactly. I remember attending a, a dinner with you, Rory, when you were uh, a minister at the Ministry of, ministry of Justice. And I can't remember the occasion, but I remember it was in an Italian basement in Westminster somewhere. And part of the conversation around that dinner was what proportion, we were talking about offenders in that situation, but we could easily talk about people struggling with addiction. What proportion of people were capable uh, or potentially could turn their lives around? And some of the most depressing thing I, things I see in our field is when people working in our field have very low ambitions and say, well, only a couple of percent of this group could ever turn their lives around because of their mental health problems or their social situation. I remember you being quite inspirational on that point, and as we would like to be, is to say anybody is capable. What, what, what is, where do those views come from? I think these are difficult things to judge. I mean, I can, only, I can only go on the basis of my very limited experience. One of the problems with being a, a minister is that you, you don't really know very much about the subject, and this is a problem in the heart of the British system. It's true of our defence ministers, our foreign ministers, as well as our prisons ministers. So I can only really go off talking to people like the Forward Trust and talking to prisoners or people who are... Uh, in probation and trying to get a sense of their lives and their stories. But you're absolutely right. It's, it, it would be deeply disturbing, and it, it is disturbing, how many people working in this field feel that there's nothing that can be done. And I think if you feel there's nothing that can be done, that's probably going to spill through into the kind of approach you take to your work. I mean, I, like you, I've met many extraordinary, expiring examples of people whose lives have turned around 
and, and in many cases, as you'll know, this may not be a, an immediate or straightforward thing. It may be more of a two-step forward, one step back, or going around in a sort of occasionally in a circle, but eventually breaking through. And I just think the, the lesson is not that it's not that it's impossible to do. I think the lesson is that it can be with individuals something that takes an enormous amount of time and patience and investment and a lot of thought. And of course, uh, society never has, the, or very rarely has the requisite patience and investment and support and, um, and compassion required to do this. There is something about the, the, the professional cultures that we worry about. We're, we're as I said earlier, we, uh, we're very much, uh, design our services around, uh, peer support and people who have, uh, been there and had the lived experience. But I remember a survey quite recently, I think only a few years ago that asked doctors and nurses who worked in the addiction field, what percentage of their caseloads did they feel were capable of recovery, abstinence, you know, getting over addiction. And the answers came back an average of less than 10%. And I think that's largely because, looking on the bright side, that medical professionals largely see people in their worst moments uh, when the addiction is is full flowing. Uh, and a lot of what we want to do with More Than My Past, the campaign, is to, uh, is to make it visible that, you know, very large numbers of people do turn their lives around and you know, need the help of a, the rest of us to do that. But it's, it's also prevalent, I think, in prison management. You know, people see the worst of people in courts and prisons and uh, uh, don't expect them to be able to change. We need to, we need to convince more people. Well, I also think tapping into the charitable sector, I mean, there are something extraordinary, like 15,000 charities that have been registered in Britain with some connection to prisons. And... As you said, often the regime or the way in which prisons are run makes it very difficult for charities to come and provide the support that they could. I think that it, it's a difficult management task, but my sense is that um, prisons need to be much, much better at knowing what they're good at and what they're not good at and how they provide the space and the support for other specialists to come in and do things. Um, there's an odd confusion in prisons. I mean, obviously, prison governors are very aware that their main focus needs to be rehabilitation. But in many ways, running a landing is quite a operational role. I mean, it's it's you've got to get the details right. You've got to get the blankets to the right place. You've got to get the cells locked and unlocked at the right time. You've got to keep everybody moving. And it may be that one of the management challenges in prison is, is getting the balance between the times when you're running quite a, a slick, disciplined system, getting people to the right place at the right time, getting stuff to them at the right time, and when you're finding the space for doing much more detailed, much more compassionate, much more thoughtful work on rehabilitation. And sometimes I think in prison things go wrong because... People are doing neither of them very well and using one as an excuse for not doing the other. It's interesting what you say about uh, doing what you're best at. We always used to have a view many years ago that uh, prison officers were not appropriate people to be involved in the rehabilitation programs. But I've got to say in the heyday of our addiction programs in prisons, which were maybe 10, 15 years ago, the prison management had a, had a policy of 
um, making prison officers available to work on the program. So, so our staff teams were partly therapists, partly counsellors, and partly prison officers, and it worked surprisingly well. Uh, the motivation and the job satisfaction for the prison officers working on the program was was a, was a key part of the success. Julie, you'll probably remember uh, some of the programs you worked on where prison officers were a key part of it. Yeah, no, definitely. And and what we try and do today, just to to touch on that as well, is um, as a trust, we we offer our training to newly recruited prison officers on addiction and rehabilitation and bring lived experience into those training sessions to educate. And I guess as a sort of a side question to you, Rory, around lived experience across all sectors, I know the Ministry of Justice are doing a big lived experience uh, recruit across that sector. And we pride ourselves on having a majority of our staff with lived experience to bring education and to provide that level of training across the sector. Do you think there needs to be more of a push in terms of prison government, police, if we had more people and even magistrates with lived experience, that it would bring a level of education because it, it can often feel like a them and an us, them and us conversation when we're speaking about rehabilitation. And just reflecting on a, a, a podcast that we did recently with a Marie Claire, she spoke of a unnamed prison governor who actually had lived experience and he wasn't forthcoming about that because of fear of stigmatization but I think if more people stepped out of the shadows across you know uh, government and, and and various different sectors and came out as role models for lived experience it would bring far wider education. Yes I think that's right I think it, it is it's um, I think it's hugely powerful to have had lived experience. I think we also need to be realistic that the majority of people working in the Ministry of Justice or the prison service will not have lived experience. And then the onus is on those organizations to give them as much experience as they can, give them time to immerse. I mean, I would think that maybe sad in the Ministry of Justice is that very few people in the MOJ had actually shadowed prison officers on their, on their daily shifts. Um, very few had, you know, spent any time in a prison cell, it was very difficult to get them to really imagine the details of what a prison was. I think we live in a world which is often can be increasingly abstract and distance from reality. I completely agree with that. And and one of one of the one of the barriers that we actually face as an organization that employs people with lived experience is the then barrier that we have trying to get our newly recruited staff prison clearance to come back in. It's often met with a blanket no. And I'm, I myself have, you know, 19, 20 years away from any conviction in long-term recovery have been refused prison clearance to come back into the prisons. And that is met then with a huge process of appealing, then going for local clearance, having to get the governor to approve it. And it can take six, seven, eight months, if not longer, for that process to go through. So it it often is a barrier to us being able to provide that um, education back into the prisons because of the barriers we face around clearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned at the top of the call that 
it seems pretty clear that addiction and uh, criminal marginalized lifestyles have their roots in poverty, social or emotional exclusion. But these are much wider challenges than prison policy or drug policy. You know, we're, we're trying to address the symptoms, but if the causes are related to levels of inequality and unhappiness and disconnection in society, do you have a view on what wider social policies we can follow to try and have a more, you know, well-being society that means we have a, a fewer people living these lifestyles? Do you think that is hopelessly uh, um, idealistic, or or should we? No, be looking no, at- I, I don't think it is, and I think the the the, the my, my view is that what's forgotten in British society across the United Kingdom is that people are. There are some people in our society who are living in very, very, very much more difficult conditions than anybody else. And how many people this is, it's difficult to put a number on, but I would say you're probably talking about um, three or four million people who are facing the most extreme experiences of poverty, of challenges around mental health, of lives that might involve going in and out of prison, and this group is ignored, I feel. And they're ignored by, I'm afraid, by most of the political parties because they're not a group that votes very much. So even the Labour Party, which is very much on the side of social justice, is forced to spend a lot of time sort of addressing, as it were, the bottom 50%, trying to find votes by making, I don't know, 20, 30 million people feel that they are in the most extreme conditions. And actually, I think that all our society and our politics would be better if we acknowledge that, yes, many people, perhaps even the majority of people in Britain have tough lives, but that isn't the big problem. The big problem are the people, and as I say, I don't know how many of it is, but the two, three million people with the most extreme tough lives. And that includes the poor elderly, that includes almost everybody that I saw come in and out of prison. And I'd like to see every political party commit far more to the people who are in the most, most difficult situation in society rather than getting involved in a conversation between, as it were, the top 40% and the bottom you know, 40%. I think I'd like to focus, as it were, on the, on the 5 or 10% that are in the most extreme conditions. That's very well put, and I couldn't agree more. Having advised both governments, Conservative and Labour, on penal policy or drug policy, it's still the case. You know, Labour and Keir Starmer are making some statements recently about drug problems and drug addiction. It's still the case that any policy or initiative needs to be couched in the idea that there are these nasty people that we have to be protected from, and uh, that is talking to the 20 million, not the 3 million. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right in uh, assessing those dynamics. And we agonize how to get out of that, but it does seem to be a bit of a cycle. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very damaging cycle because the evidence-based policies are not pursued. It's, it's very sad. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.